Computer, initialize Holosuite. Welcome to another episode of The Fire Caves, a Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Perry. And I'm your host, David. Tonight we're talking about Season 4, Episode 7, Starship Down. Before we continue, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube as The Fire Caves, a Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast. That is correct. And as we say every single week, you should find us and follow us and let us know what you think. Are we doing a great job? Are you doing a horrible job? I'm not saying that what you say is going to in any way impact what we do. Just say it. You should let us know. It'd be fun. Um, so as David said, yes, we are talking about Season 4, Episode 7. That's Episode 7. I know that if you are looking at any other particular lists, Wikipedia, Memory Alpha, whatever, they have separated them slightly different. Um, just keep in mind, the first episode of Season 4 was a two-parter. That's why the numbering is off. But this is Episode 7. For our count and for the real count, it is Episode 7. So just bear that in mind as we move forward. Um so Starship Down, great episode. We're going to jump right into it here in a minute. But of yeah. course, as always, like to um, catch up with David here. You know, we don't always talk throughout the week. So, David, how was your week? Kind of a little uh, slow at work a little bit. Today was a busy day, actually. Uh, today was popping off quite nicely. Um, then, uh, yeah, not much else. I want to get into Season 2 of Altered Carbon, but... One of my roommates, the one I've been watching it with, was out of town. He went to go buy a car. He kind of spontaneously flew out of town to go find this car he was looking for. And uh, ended up buying it yesterday. He's driving it home now from uh, Kansas City, Missouri. That's where he flew up to go get it. I... That's a heck of a long way to go for a car. Yeah. And he got it. Uh, okay. Boom, baby. <laughs> That's... How about you? What's new with you? Um, so two things. Uh, one thing that I have been working on for a while, um, that was the whole, you know, kind of being fit, getting back into shape and doing things along those lines. So I have, uh, I think the last time we'd I'd done this kind of update, I talked about joining a different gym and, uh, that's been going pretty well. And, uh, now what I am focusing on is trying to compete not win, but compete in one of those strongman competitions. I think that it would be very interesting to do just to, just to see, you know, what what I can do. So I met some individuals who do that. There's like a group that um, they basically there's a lot of like, I guess you consider them like mini competitions or whatever right and you just okay. this is where you would go and you again for people who are just starting out and you're just kind of get into the atmosphere of doing it and everything else this is where you would go and you kind of start doing a circuit where you train for these things and you go to different competitions and you compete you place you can move on you can whatever and that's what i'm going to do at least for a little while i want to just want to see what it's like see what i can do with it Right. And um, really kind of push myself. There's a person that I've been following along 
for a while now who um, he started doing this when uh, he was about my age. Um, he's 54 now and still competing and um, looks fantastic. He's a heck of a lot stronger than I am. And I have to admit, I'm I'm jealous. Like I, I'm jealous of the fact that he is so much older than me, but I mean, he, he can do so much more. And so, yeah, my goal is to um, surpass him quickly, you know, but while well, that's a goal, I understand that, you know, it's going to take a lot, but um, I enjoy the fact that I'll be able to compete and be physically fit doing it. So right. um, that's cool. So, yeah, so that's just that kicks off tomorrow, my first official day where we do weigh-ins and talk about workouts and diet plans and all that other kind of stuff. That's tomorrow. And then Monday is um, um, my first day of actual workouts. So um, I may be dead next week. I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. I'll have to carry uh, on without you. <laughs> yes. You know, finish the show, David. It's important that you finish the show. Um other than that, I went to a crawfish boil today, um, with, had a great time. The weather was fantastic considering, you know, we had mm. hellacious storms um, last week or last, yeah, just last yeah. night. Uh, yeah. We had hail here. And, you showed me um, a picture of the hail. You yeah. found a handful of hail out where yeah. you were. <laughs> I mean, but it was just, it was everywhere and it, just, and it happened so suddenly, you know, like it, like I remember the weatherman saying it was going to start at five o'clock and I swear, like the moment that clock hit five, the skies opened and it was just a torrential downpour and hail. And I worried about my car and, you know, the whole nine. Right. right. Um, uh, there was even, there was the overpass over here heading North, like to um, round rock and people had parked underneath it because they didn't <laughs> want their cars to be damaged by the hail. However, it caused not only a huge um, backlog in traffic, but it also caused um, emergency, yeah, emergency services to be late because they had parked so that, like no cars could go through. Like they weren't just pulled off to the side. Like some people even moved their cars and parked sideways underneath right. it to get as to much get the of their protection. car under. Yeah, it. yeah, to get as much of their car under as possible, <laughs> and it was just it was a mess. So um, yeah. Other than that, I've been trying to um, not, you know, kill myself <laughs> with 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 crazy things. So, and it's, it's going quite well. Oh, glad you haven't died yet. <laughs> yes, the craw- Otherwise, other than like I said, the crawfish boil though it was it was great. The weather was really nice. We had a nice breeze. We had a nice turnout of people. Um, good food, good music. I don't know how everybody else feels about crawfish in general. I'm not the biggest fan because it seems to me like every time that anybody uses crawfish, it's only ever in crawfish boils and it's always very spicy to me. I know some people really enjoy that. In fact, there were people who were like intentionally waiting until towards the end because I guess a lot of the spice sinks down in the boil. And so they wanted to get that last bit that comes up that's super spicy. That was not for me. I'm, I guess I'm a wuss. I can't handle majorly spicy things. I like a touch of spice with stuff. You know, I have my sriracha. I keep it on hand for for things, but not like that. But um, so I was definitely one of the people eating in the first batch, and it was great. I loved every bit of that. But um, the hotter, as the hotter stuff came out, I was just like, yeah, I'll have at it. Um, (laughs) Surprise fan of spicy crawfish, my daughter. She went to town. She had never had crawfish before. 
And so, of course, having to show her how to break it apart and how to eat it and everything else. And once she figured it out, she was, she was a monster. She was just yeah. a beast. Didn't touch any of the vegetables, of course. But <laughs> she went for it on the crawfish, sucking the head. She did the whole thing. She got. She was totally into it. And uh, I was quite impressed. Nice. So uh, we had a great time. Great time today. Cool. But yeah, um, looking forward to doing some other stuff like that here soon. Hopefully we'll see. But um, we're not here to talk about crawfish and nope. other craziness. So I'm sure that Cisco would have a lot to say about crawfish. Oh, man, he would. <laughs> He's a New Orleans man. He would yeah. love – I'd love to pick his brain on other ways to prepare crawfish. We were talking about it today. And it's just like, what are some other ways that you can prepare crawfish in a meal? And, you know, I found all out about etouffee and everything else. But I just – something else, you know. If there's, is there some other way to do it? Right. Um, we'll see. I'll, I might look that up and do like a crawfish night or something. I don't know. Right. Um, but no, while Cisco would be a fan, that is not what we're here to talk about. Nope. We're here to talk about this great episode of okay. return kind of to the overall arc of deep space nine. Yes. Um, and, uh, return to the fact that Cisco is the emissary. Something we haven't really focused on much for yeah. a while. So, That's yeah, true. kind of yeah. a return to a couple of things here. So, um, but before we get into all that, David, would you like to give the uh, summation or do you want me to do it? I'm happy to I do mean, it. I mean, I rocked it last week. I was fantastic. All of, <laughs> all of two seconds worth. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll do this one. Uh, sorry, my voice is a little scratchy, but hopefully that's not a problem for everybody. All right. So, uh, in this episode, the, Fed, uh, the Defiant has the crew on it, minus Odo. He's the only one who's not of our main cast here on the ship today. Um, and they are out in the Gamma Quadrant uh, to help settle some trade agreements between the Federation and the Karama. Karama, uh, yes, the Karama people. They are an alien race in the Gamma Quadrant uh, with their main representative, Hanuk. Hanuk? Hanuk, Hanuk. yes. Okay. Um, the... Dominion has not allowed the Karma to have direct relationships or direct trading relationships with the Federation. So the um, Ferengi and the Quark are acting as an intermediary representative. And as you can imagine, that means that Quark has been uh, ripping everyone off left and right. <laughs> and so part of the reason we're having these negotiations is because Quark, as the Ferengi representative, has been creating trouble for everybody. Um. However, as you can imagine, being in the Gamma Quadrant, they're having to keep an eye out for Jim Hadar, and some Jim Hadar ships show up. And so the Karama ship uh, that had been taking Hanuk uh, to come meet the, the, the Defiant, that ship is being attacked by the Jim Hadar. Obviously, they're making an example of the Jim of the Karama, the Jim Hadar making an example of the Karama ship, and saying like basically you can't trade with the Federation. Uh, they're they're trying to make a, an example of them. And so they chase that ship into the atmosphere of a planet to try and escape. Uh, the Karma ship has uh, gone into the atmosphere. The Defiant is not necessarily meant to go into atmosphere, but Cisco, being one of the people who helped create the Defiant, decides, hey, I think the ship can handle it, and we're not going to let these people uh, be killed by the Jim Hadar, so we're going to go after them. Mm-hmm. That causes problems because, unfortunately... The atmosphere is quite dense around this planet, and um, when they are attacked by the Jim Hadar, 
they uh, start taking some pretty heavy damage to the point that a one one section of the ship uh, loses uh, its uh, what structure and uh, some it's it's gonna collapse or whatever it is um, and so Jadzia and some others go down to try and uh, stop the fluoride atmosphere getting into the ship fluorine to the fluorine um, however they're only narrowly able to do that uh, to fix the, the fix the thing they need to fix before the the bulkhead collapses in that part of the ship and so dr. Bashir stays back to help save Jadzia from uh, the loss of atmosphere on the ship as the bulkhead collapses so they are stuck together in freezing temperatures in a part of the ship that can no longer be accessed or uh, heard on communications. Part of the reason for that is because during an attack by the Jim'Hadar on the Defiant, uh, they are very badly damaged. The, the Defiant uh, is very badly damaged. The uh, uh, um, bridge, excuse me, the bridge is very badly damaged. Cisco is knocked unconscious uh, and um, ah, names, <laughs> um, Worf, there we go, Worf, Worf. I was gonna say. my gosh, Worf, Worf is the one who's still, uh, still up, Kira stays with Cisco to, and tries to keep him awake, because he has a concussion, and so she talks about stories about, you know, about Bajorans, she gives Bajoran stories to keep Cisco awake, and she kind of bonds with him a bit because um, this episode being about the emissary, uh, the point is, is that part of the reason they're on this mission altogether is that Cisco didn't want to be a part of a celebration back on Bajor for the emissary. He kind of was using this mission, or at least Kira thinks so, as an, as an excuse to not to go to not go to this celebration, this anniversary party of the emissary. Um, which she's sad about because she takes him seriously as the emissary. Um, she takes her religious beliefs seriously. And so uh, here is the emissary in her hands, almost dying. She has to make a decisions about his medical care because Bashir is not available and the, the bridge has been destroyed. You know, people have died on the bridge. Meanwhile, Worf goes down to Ops where O'Brien, I'm sorry, engineering, to... Um, keep track of the damage of the ship. O'Brien and his crew of engineers are doing what they can to keep the ship working. Um, he has two subordinates down there that O'Brien uh, is working with. And when Worf goes down there to take control, he's just kind of short. He was very, I need this done and I need it done now. And I don't want excuses. I don't want um, pushback. I need things done now. And so O'Brien tells him hey like he pulls him aside at one point and says hey these guys are good at what they do just give them a chance to work and prove themselves just give them a break and uh, uh Worf learns to do that and those guys are able to help um create a weapon that they use to finally defeat the uh Jim Hadar ships and they're able to save the Karama uh ambassador's uh people on that ship um, the ambassador, I should mention, is stuck with Quark in a part of the ship <laughs> that gets hit by a torpedo that doesn't go off. 
And it turns out that torpedo was sold by the Karma to the, the Jim Hadar. So he has some knowledge about how to dearm it. And they, uh, Quark talks to him about, hey, part of the whole beauty of trade and negotiating is the risk and reward, the gambling aspect of it. Uh, and he basically proves that to this representative uh, through the whole taking a part of this, you know, torpedo that hasn't mm-hmm. blown up. They have to make a one a 50-50 chance decision about which part of the torpedo to pull out because if they choose wrong it'll blow up but if they choose right it'll disarm it and so of course cork pulls it out is successful so everyone goes back to the station and um the karma representative plays some dabo because he's learned to be more willing to gamble because of cork's uh, suggestion and he of course wins big to cork's uh, disappointment and also pleasure because that means that you know, the guy's getting it now. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's Oh, we should say that Jadzia and uh, Bashir get to talk about their relationship while they're isolated uh, in the damaged part of the ship. And uh, apparently, Dr. Bashir had some fantasies early on of the two of them being stuck in a situation like this so he could have her alone. Um, you know, if they had got on a damaged ship, like a damaged runabout, and it meant that the only two of them were able to stay together and very creepy, very silly, but yeah. we'll talk more about very, that. Yeah. But, very, yeah. very juvenile um, <laughs> fantasy that he had. And yeah, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Cause I had some thoughts on that too, about mainly the man just didn't, didn't take the hint. Um, actually, you know what? We're, we're here. We'll start with that. We'll start um, with that. <laughs> yeah. Might, might as well. Like he says that, you know, he had these fantasies about her, and um, it. Then she asks him about him. She even calls him out on the fact that it's a very unusual fantasy to have. And he says, "Well, you know, it seemed like it would be the only way that you would spend time with me." So right. it's like, okay, so then take the hint, man. She doesn't want to spend time with you. If right. the if the best thing you can come up with is scenarios where you guys are on deserted islands or locked away yes. in a shuttle and it's only the two of you and you have to use your bodies for warmth. Okay, come on, man. Like, again, read the room, right? And she yeah. even says, you know, like, you came on so strong, you didn't give me a chance to get to know you, know and, you. you know, and it's like, you know, once she did get to know him and relaxed her in a little bit, she, you know, was interested. But now his feelings have changed. So it's kind of like, you know, uh, hey, Subtle nod to all you dudes out there who are like hardcore pursuing certain women. Right. Maybe the reason you haven't been so successful is because you are hardcore pursuing them. Perhaps, you know, right. slow down. Right. Try to get to know them. Right. I mean, who knows? You might get to know them and find out they're a horrible person. <laughs> it happens. You know, it happens. Or, in, like in this case, you might establish a genuine friendship with somebody and there's no need for anything else. Right. You know, right. So. Just saying, and it makes you a better person. That's one thing we can um, talk about here as well with Julian. He seems like he's he's just more comfortable. Remember, remember how nervous he was when we watched him in season one. He was always so jittery and always talking so much and everything else. Now he seems he's much calmer. He's much more right. stable. Um, he's matured for sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. He's not the the naive boyish doctor who was saying things that were pissing people off left and right and not realizing he was doing it. <laughs> now, I mean, he's much more um, personable than right. he was the last two, three seasons. So, um, 
And Jadzia has changed too. We've learned a lot about her. We've seen her come through some things as well. And now they have this really great um, friendship that they get to, you know, rely on here. So I enjoyed that little bit between them, the, the gentle teasing, the explanations between the two of them about, you know, kind of where they stood with each other. And then watching that play out later on the episode where, you know, she rescues him from Morn's incessant talking That's about right. himself and his family. And that she man scoops him out. Chatterbox. Every time Absolutely. we see him on screen, he is talking, talking, talking. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. I mean, Screen Actors Guild really hasn't come after that guy at all for <laughs> his lines. But yeah. But um, other than that, of course, we uh, next thing we want to turn to is Cisco and being the emissary. And so we only hear a little bit of this in passing. I just wanted to go over that really quick here. So um, Kira is offered some snacks or whatever by Jadzia when they're on the bridge. They're in the back section of the bridge and they're sitting there. And she offers them to Kira. Kira turns them down and says she's fasting because it is Hamara. Hamara is the name of the Bajoran festival that celebrates the... Um, the, the emissary, the arrival of the emissary, the gift of the emissary to the Bajoran people from the prophets. Apparently there was a huge festival and there were lights and parties and dancing and singing and all this stuff on Bajor. And Cisco said, nope, we're not going. We're going we're to go do drills with the, <laughs> with, with the karma in the Gamma Quadrant instead. Right. So... Why I like to like to talk about this is because it's an interesting concept of maintaining this kind of distance from essentially deification, if we can extend that term here a little bit. You know, um, I, I can't think of anything in other contemporary fictions that have had people essentially, yes, elevated to this kind of godlike status over a whole group of people and Cisco coming from not just not just from Earth and uh, human background and all that but being a part of Starfleet it's very much frowned upon for Starfleet officers to impose themselves in another culture's religion we right. see this you know even Picard tried to stay away from this in um, uh, next generation you know so it's just um Obviously, it's a big no-no. And even, you know, when when Starfleet finds out about Cisco's kind of appointment to this very special position and of influence and power here for the Bajoran people, they question whether or not to keep him in his role. So this is not something that Starfleet has been comfortable with. So perhaps Ben is doing a, a two-fold service here. I mean, he's already uncomfortable, but he's also protecting his job Um because I think if the Federation found out that he was maybe indulging in his emissary status, they probably would have removed him from the position. It's yeah. a good point. Yeah. Yeah, I like to think about, uh, you know, because it's like, it, it, from Starfleet, and from what we've seen of Starfleet, them encountering unusual aliens and beings with different abilities and, and so forth is almost commonplace. Right. You know, the the Starfleet, the Starship captain is kind of expected to be able to handle themselves and not elevate themselves whenever these things happen. So, yeah, I could see Starfleet being like, mm, wait a minute, we sent him to the Bajoran sector and now he's basically a god. Let's pull him before this becomes a problem. <laughs> yes. 
You know, <laughs> let's let's get him out of there before that sticks. Right. right? So, yeah. but what are your thoughts? What do you think? Do you think that Ben's doing the right thing here, staying away, or um, should he kind of use his use his position a little bit more to? get what he ultimately wants, which again, the goal here was to bring Bajor into the fold, to bring Bajor into Starfleet, into the Federation. Um, I would put it this way. Benjamin Sisko wouldn't be Benjamin Sisko, and he wouldn't even be the emissary if he wasn't the type to be humble about this type of stuff and not be all up in it. Um, Sisko is not the type and it's a good thing that he's not the type to go, you know, I have this power and authority. I'm going to go use it up in an attempt to manipulate Bajoran government society. Um, he is the emissary because he is not the type to abuse the position. If he was the type to abuse it, he wouldn't be the emissary and vice versa. Um, so, yes, I think it is – it's right, and it does make sense that he is not reveling in his power. Uh, it's not who the man mm-hmm. is, uh, both as a person and as his role in as an officer. And uh, that makes him honorable, and it makes him reliable. And, um, I mean, it's, an, it's a commentary on religious things that, um, you know, honoring and, and, and uh, having some – mystique and and having some you know respect for things that you don't have regular interaction with this is a an example of that in a sense um yeah you know he he stands out in a, in a part and that's why he's in the role in this religious sense um so yeah so would you say that this is kind of like an idealized view of a religious leader to a degree because he's not imposing any particular rule or edict over the people, even though they've given him this title. He did not seek out being the emissary. He doesn't really consider himself the emissary. Yes, he made contact with the prophets, the wormhole aliens, whatever you want to call them. But, you know, the Bajorans came up with that title and bestowed it upon him. And since that time, he hasn't done anything to, like, he's not walking around in ceremonial garb and vestments and whatever, and he's not making grand decrees from his office saying, you know, the emissary says you've got to, you know, stop wearing your earrings and, you know, get, <laughs> get to work and join the Federation immediately. You know, he's not, right. he's not doing any of that. Um, but, but what he does allow for, it seems anyway, is for people to, um, I guess, accept that he's just a man. Yeah. And to not view him as anything particularly special. And he doesn't, um, yeah, he doesn't go out and, you know, give, like, ministering to the sick and poor and whatever. And he's not um, in a church behind a pulpit or doing any of that stuff either. Um, but I guess, yeah, my, I guess my original question is would this be kind of like an idealized version of a. Uh, not necessarily a religious leader, but maybe like a secular leader, like somebody who doesn't make you, doesn't make you worship them, but because of their deeds, their actions, their words, you can see why they are respected, revered, and right. looked to for um, leadership. Well, I guess what I'd say is 
there's a parallel in the Bible. The book of Judges is called Judges because during the period when, when the Israelites first move into what was called Canaan at the time, is there's a number of, there's a succession of leaders that come up who lead the nation in times of crisis. And they are a range of good and bad. You know, some of them are okay. Most of them are pretty flawed people. <laughs> they, uh, they make a lot of mistakes, let me put it that way. So in the, as, as a comparison, the reason Ben Sisko is good in his role as the emissary, because the emissary, it's like a divine protector. He is a protector from the gods in the sense that he is ordained. But on the realistic secular level, he's like any other military figure defending his, his, his posts, mm-hmm. and he's good at it. That's why he's a good guy and a good character. Not because – let me put it this way. The religious aspect does not define Cisco, which is why Correct. it's awkward for him. That's yeah. not what defines him. So for him to be perceived that way from his perspective is, is, is wrong. It's like I'm not doing this because anyone you know, poiled, poured oil on my head and said the Lord has made you judge over Israel or anything like that. No, it's – He's doing a job, <laughs> and uh, so yeah, it's he's he's just he's just a good dude doing his job as best he can. Uh, and my point is, is like he's doing his job by going out with the defiant and going to the gamma quadrant and defending trade representatives. That's his job, but that serves the Bajoran people, and um, it, it he's able to fulfill a dual function, even though that religious aspect is not something he's intentionally trying to do so yeah i think it's well i think it's interesting that we're talking about this now we're talking about you know the bestowing of titles and what this means and all this kind of stuff right when we are getting ready to witness a uh, major bestowing of a title that hasn't happened in over what? 70 years? Yeah, I was going to say 70, you know, six, seven decades. And that's, of course, the coronation of uh, King Charles the Third. Yes. Third? He's the third. Right. Yes. Sure. So, um, so like you said, here's a, it, you know, he wasn't, Cisco wasn't exactly, you know, anointed or, you know, whatever. Uh, it, with all the pomp and circumstance that's going to go on regarding this coronation, I mean, he's the first king in seven decades. Um, it just makes me wonder about people who like, is this a, a destiny fulfilling thing? Or, I mean, obviously he was a part of a, uh, a lineage, right. you know? Um, but does this make him any more or less kingly than someone else who's also served in the government for the past 50 years? Right. Or, or whatever, you know, who's, who's been a dedicated, civil servant has never been a problem has always you know listened to the people and done his best to serve the people and so forth does this make you know just because he happens to be born in a different family should we be putting that title on him or onto someone else who like cisco didn't seek it out but has done everything now to um kind of you know engender a certain mystique about the title i guess right so i mean I feel like more for this coronation, this is more of a hanging on to tradition than it is of any kind of official 
power or status or standing or anything like that. You know, I mean, we don't in the world. I don't think we have any true kingdoms. Now, I could be completely wrong about that. I don't know every single governmentary system, governmental system that every nation has, and I'm sure that probably there is somewhere that has a legit, you know, monarchy that is still in power since the dawn of time. Um, but as far as I know, there's no one that, w- that we don't do that anymore. Yeah. So is it really necessary to have a, this major <laughs> coronation? And I saw something about them moving some rock or whatever that's been the rock that they have crowned kings on for the, you know, since fourth century or some nonsense. And just like, how do we know that that's true? How do we know that this is this is the rock, right? Like it could it could have been any rock. Like who said that this is the one? And yeah, stuff like that just also blows my mind when we reach back that far into supposed antiquity. And I mean, it's just like, oh, well, what did you do? Just went out and you carbonated a rock and said, ah, oh, that's close. Polish it up, bring it in. We're gonna say this is the one. All right. So. But anyway, all of that to say, I, I like the fact that we were returning to the emissary story a little bit here. The acknowledgement that there is something special and unique about this individual who is Ben Sisko. We haven't really talked about that. We haven't really seen any kind of real deep dive into the emissary stuff um, lately. And then, of course, we get a great touching moment between Sisko and Kira, where she's trying to keep him awake. She's telling the story about the Kava farmers and them trying to get the cover to the market and, and all that stuff um then you know to find out too ben passing in and out of consciousness actually heard her and yeah. responded and then remembered stuff and we see at the end of the episode he takes on her suggestion about moving to a four shift rotation and because um, he says it like i was thinking like mm-hmm. It sounds like it, it just was a subconsciously took it in like he wasn't yeah. conscious for necessarily for that part of it I could see how you could make that. I, I always took it as it was a gentle acknowledgement to her that he had actually heard her. Because she smile and say, yeah, right. great, yeah. But she also talked about the fact that, you know, he keeps her at arm's length. That she's that she's yes. noticed that he's very close with Dax, for example. But that he's also way more comfortable around Bashir and Worf and O'Brien than he is with her. And she knows that it's because he's not a religious figure in their lives. You know, he is just a man. He's just another officer. And uh, she's placed this note of specialness on him that even she has to realize or she recognizes in the moment that she didn't, you know, she didn't realize she was doing until just now. And the thought of losing him was making her panic a bit, you know? Yes. Um, so yeah, so the fact that he acknowledges all of this, that's how I took it. He acknowledges this and he sees that, you know, him keeping her at a distance was actually making the thing he was trying to avoid worse. He was establishing himself in this otherness with her and not allowing her to see him as just a man, just a father, you know? And so now he's like, well, you know, come, come watch baseball with me. Get the hot dogs from Cork. And here's even gave her a hat. Like, uh, just great, you know, great personal bonding moment between captain and first officer. So I enjoyed that. And that's one thing we also forget too. Kira is his first officer. Worf jumped up and took charge, but Kira is the first officer. So let's, let's remember that. That's actually a great point because Worf was the one who was, running the ship whenever Cisco wasn't. 
Um, when Cisco at the beginning of the episode is in there with the negotiating at the negotiating table, it's Worf who's in the captain's chair yeah. and who calls Cisco back to the bridge. So yeah, what's up with that? Do you think? That- so I think that they've made a distinction here that when it comes to Starfleet stuff, right, that Worf is in charge. And that when it comes to anything else, you know, and it's on the station or it's about liaison through, you know, the the main office and new aliens or whatever else, then I think that's when Kira takes point. So um, a, a, a great way to give a distinction between two characters and not diminish either one of them, right. you know. Um, so, yeah. And um, yeah, Worf, Worf would always command the Defiant, whereas Kira would command the station and uh, see two things there. Whereas Cisco, obviously, he oversees both. Right. Um, yeah. So then let's let's talk about Worf here a little bit because we get to see a little bit more growth, which, you know, we got to see a little bit of this in Hippocratic Oath. Worf having to move away from this um, security mindset and right. into the recognition that one, his job has changed, and two, his life and lifestyle has to change and adapt to where he is now. And right. now he's, he's in, in the command com- now. Yeah. Right, he's in command. He has to learn how to not just give orders, but to encourage his people and to you know take care of them. And um, I thought it was an interesting way to demonstrate his struggle because it was a crisis situation. Things were tense, but Worf was to use any uh, use a phrase he was more wharf than normal <laughs> he was very hard on everybody and just you know barking orders and um you know kind of scary a little bit there for those people who weren't um used to him and you could see it you know like the younger ensigns and stuff when he would say yeah. things to them and they kind of just backed up and th- that shoulder hunching and that apprehensive pose you know and it's the like, side oh, yeah. glances at each other yeah O'Brien, at O'Brien. Like, oh, like, my... Brian, can you uh yeah, say can... something here for us <laughs> i think this klingon's gonna eat me can you uh can you come over here yeah so uh... the episode the first time we see that happen is at the beginning of the episode when again sis uh wharf is in the captain's chair and a woman one of the other federation authors comes up and is saying about like reaction times he's like i want these reaction times down by 15 percent and she says well if you consider the and he cuts her off he's like i don't want any excuses i want this down i do it again um so it sets the episode up for like wharf isn't he's not used to being in command that's the one thing we have to remember here he is not used to being in command for seven years he was on the enterprise he was a security chief he took orders from pretty much everybody you know uh Picard, Riker, and then when Deanna became a commander, she could also right. give him orders as well. So most of the bridge staff Dr. could give Worf right. To, yeah. Most of the bridge staff could give Worf orders, and now all of a sudden he's in a position where he is issuing them. And he initially he seems like an ideal fit. You know, he's he seems like on paper he would make a good commanding officer. But that's kind of the point here. It's to break down the fact that while he knows what to do he definitely has the training he doesn't have that experience of actually leading people and taking care of your officers and your personnel below you and this is where he starts to get that experience and learn that through his interactions not with just the junior officers but also with o'brien kind of showing him you know hey there's a way that you can encourage people and get them to do what you want without you know you know giving away the the whole farm here right 
And and I love seeing that moment between the two of them too, because you get to see you know OG TNG characters yeah, they know each getting other. to right, yeah. getting to talk to each other, and that's what really sells it—the familiarity and right. the comfortability between those two right. makes this work. Because if you take O'Brien out and say that was Bashir trying to give Worf command tips. I don't think Worf would have listened to him at all. He would have dismissed right. him and been like, you're a doctor. What the hell do you know? Right. right. And then even well, with the coming. O'Brien from... is in charge of the text that he has trouble yes. with later on too. Mm-hmm. So O'Brien already has an insight into how to motivate them. Yeah. Right. But then if it's also like, if he had been, if this had been Cisco trying to guide Worf, I do think that he would have listened, but there would have been a, again, a bit of a distance there because Worf is, you know, that's his commanding officer. Right. You know, and so the advice would have been seen more as of of lecturing, I think. Whereas with O'Brien, it's more conversational. This right. is these are friends talking right. to each other, people who've known each other well for a very long time, who have a certain comfortability about them. And we even see that at the end when they're in Quark's bar and O'Brien and Worf are sitting together having a drink after all this yeah. has has yeah. gone down. So definitely that familiarity between the two of them was kind of a key. Um, uh, ingredient here to making these scenes work and making us realize again <coughs> Worf is very different and it's not just about him being from a different show or a different ship however you want to look at it in universe or whatever but he's just a different kind of individual right? and having to adjust himself to these guys is, um, is his learning curve right yeah it's really interesting this episode by the halfway point turns into what at least four different pairings of people we have Bashir mm-hmm. and uh Dax we have Cisco and Kira we have O'Brien and Worf and then we have Quark and what Hanok yeah and I, I I mentioned this to you before we started recording I recognized James Cromwell's yes, voice behind that um, yes, makeup. you did. It, it's it's a classic voice, and um, even though all the makeup totally obscures who's behind there, his voice just stands out, and um, it was so, lovely to, to hear him. Yeah. So ahead. before I tell you his Trek connection, what do you know James Cromwell from? The one thing I know him best from, the one that just stands out the most in my mind, is I Robot with Will Smith. I love that movie. I watched a yes. YouTube video lately where the, the this someone and I, I like this guy's stuff, but he was saying he didn't like the movie iRobot because as he points out in his video, which was a good video, the movie iRobot is actually not at all related to the Isaac Asimov iRobot. It is a totally unique and different thing. And so this guy was pointing out that the iRobot movie, he doesn't like it, and that's one of the reasons why. I disagree. I love iRobot. I think it's a great movie. It's a classic Will Smith and uh, uh, Cromwell here uh, is a crucial part of the plot uh, because he's the one whose death initiates the plot. We have to investigate his murder. Who's in a robot that killed him. Anyway, so that's the thing I know him best from, though I know I've seen him in other stuff. Um, Tell me more. So, um, the Trek connection. James Cromwell has been in Star Trek a lot as a guest star. He was actually in a couple of episodes of The Next Generation. He was in the episode where 
um, what was it? The the people have have modified their soldiers to be like super soldiers. And then they fought the war. And then once the war was over, they were like, okay, we don't need you anymore. So they placed them all into a penal colony that was on like their moon. And one okay. of them escapes and runs amok on the enterprise um, for a bit. Um, yes. Okay. Yes. And so James Cromwell was the administrator or something like that of that uh, society. Prime and, Minister Nayrock. I yes. think I remember this one the more I'm looking at it. Yeah, keep yes. going. And so um, so that was his first appearance in uh, Next Generation. He later appears in Next Generation in an episode where Worf has to, he gets word that his father may be alive still. And so he goes up on this mission to try and find his father, and he ends up running into a Uridian traitor, smuggler, or something like that, who um, tells him where to go. And he helps Worf get to the colony where these Klingons were living, basically in like secret exile or whatever. It was the episode was called Birthright. Right. And Worf goes, turns out his father is not there, but he does discover that there are several Klingons who are living here as like. They used to be prisoners of the Romulans, but then eventually they just kind of like form their own society yeah. with the with the Romulans. And some of them had even married Romulans and had Romulan children. Right. And um, eventually Worf convinces them to let the children go, but the parents stay in their exile because right. honor and Klingon society wouldn't have allowed them to return. Right. So yeah, Cromwell plays that alien there. And then as a... Um, uh, mild spoiler for you. Um, he later plays Zephram Cochran, who is the guy for us in the Trek lore. Zephram Cochran invented the first uh, warp engine. And because of his warp engine, we meet the Vulcans for the first time and thus kicks off the union that would eventually lead to Starfleet and the Federation and, and so forth. So okay. um, he gets to play. Yeah, he plays Zephyr Cochran. Uh, it's in the movie First Contact, so that's coming up for you on your things to watch here yes. soon. And so you'll get to see him again. And that's the only bit I'm going to tell you about it because it's a great <laughs> movie. Um, great movie, um, First Contact. But uh, yeah, he plays uh, Zephyr Cochran in that movie. And then he reprises the role of Zephyr Cochran in Star Trek Enterprise. And he's in the very first episode uh, as, again, an, a much older Zephyrm Cochran in that oh, episode. Okay. So, uh, yeah, so he's he's Trek famous. We we love James Cromwell. He's um, yeah, his, quite uh, the individual. His Wikipedia page has almost an entire paragraph dedicated to his showings in Star Trek. So. Well, he's not, he's also a pretty interesting individual just in his own right. You know, not only is he an extensive, you know, uh, film and theater actor, but he's also uh, quite the environmentalist and activist. And he has done a lot to, um, I, I have heard um, of yeah, gone to a lot of protests, been out there, been arrested multiple <laughs> times for protesting. Um, so, yeah, the guy is, um, uh, again, quite interesting. And he is, he's definitely worth, if if you've got the time, Go at the very least read his Wikipedia page. It's quite interesting to just kind of see the things that he's done over the course of his life. And he doesn't seem to be slowing down anytime soon uh, when it comes to jobs and acting and so forth. And like you said, he has a very distinctive 
a full-bodied voice. Yes. And um, hasn't, I feel like it hasn't diminished at all. Not at but, all. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because so, yeah. the, the thing I most recently seen him in, which I forgot when you asked me where I remember him from, the show Counterpart I mentioned, which um, stars, oh gosh, what's his name? Um, uh, yes. Jay Jonah Janemason. Yeah, the guy who plays him, whose name at the moment I can't remember. Anyway, um, he is in that as a very important character in season two. And I won't say any more than that because, again, that's a great show. Um, but, yeah, Cromwell shows up there. and uh, J.K. Simmons. That's it, J.K. Simmons. <laughs> J.K. Simmons, fabulous. I can't tell you how great he is in this show because he's playing two versions of himself. And he has conversations with himself as two very different versions of the same person. <laughs> Imagine you yeah. having split from you now 30 years ago. Like if there was a you from 30 years ago who had a different life trajectory and then you met 30 years later, what would that be like? So yeah, both of us 37, but both having lived vastly different lives from the point of seven onward. Yeah. yeah we'd essentially be completely different people. Right. I mean, I'd be three, so literally, not even three, two, my entire life would have been absolutely different. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's the whole point of that show. So anyway, um, he shows up there, um, but we should talk about Star Trek here. Uh, it's a fun <laughs> episode with the whole Quark angle, because again, as I mentioned, the whole reason we're even in the Gamma Quadrant is because uh, Quark has been <laughs> ripping everybody off here in the um, Gamma Quadrant and the, the, the Federation and the Karma. And yes. so the Karma is basically angry because he's like, hey, the Federation has all these tariffs and all these ridiculous things that reduce our profit margin. And every and, and Cisco immediately knows what's happening. But then everything happens. Which, I mean, it's just like, what what did you expect? Like, I get it. You really didn't have any choice. The, the Federation couldn't do business with the karma directly because the dominion wasn't going to have it. You needed a, an intermediary and the, and the federate, the Ferengi already had an in, which right. again, we saw established several episodes ago, other seasons when, when the grand Nagus wants Quark to establish a tulaberry wine, wine. franchise, you yes. know, a pipeline there for tulaberry wine, which he does. Right. So yeah, it makes sense to use them to get this trade going and to make inroads into the dominion, into the, into the gamma quadrant and so forth. But the Ferengi suck. They're schemers, they're stealers, right. they're swindlers and thieves. And, you know, Quark breaks it down really well and almost makes it sound, you know, poetic with the way he talks about the need for a little bit of a little bit of greed, a little sleaze. You got to have yeah. some of that in there. Otherwise, as he says, it's just barter. Yeah. Like that's such a bad thing, you know. Trying to find out how much you can get away with. Yes, and you got to assume the other guy is doing the same thing. Right. So it's all about who can outscheme, outmaneuver the other person right first or the best right you know right. and cork has really kind of made this his bread and butter here it's not so much the it's not so much the whatever it is the merchandise you're trying to sell it's the deal you can strike with it what can you truly get out of this right i have to applaud his brazen adding of taxes fines and levies to a contract that the federation was going to review <laughs> at some point 
he's got them 4% tax for scanning for in, um, Found, founders. founders. Yeah. Yeah, founders. Yep, sorry, foundlings. Uh, sorry. For changeling smugglers. He's got Great. another tax for the Tarkalian sheep herders. And if I'm There's, not mistaken... I love how it, when he says it, uh, Quark just sits there and says, you gotta really care for them. You gotta... You gotta, you gotta understand hardworking people. <laughs> you gotta you gotta feel for them. And does he up, say... Right. Does he say another one about Bajoran war orphans? Like, or yeah. maybe I remember... I thought there was no, a one in there about no, there being like episode. a little donation about... I don't, they say it so often. I, I just... It makes me feel bad every time I hear it brought up because because yeah. we know there are legit war orphans and yes. this man is using it in his in his schemes to get people to get right. more people's money. It just it's so bad. Oh well, it's man, funny that you Quark. mentioned the whole um, federation looking over the contract because he says to the guy to uh, what Karak Karim? What is it? Um, Hanok of Karma. Hanok. He says to Hanok, dude, I'm I got the federation. Paying all kinds of things, like I, I'm ripping them off left and right, and so I thought I could get away with it with you too. But you're better than them, so I respect you. Which is, you know, why he starts talking about uh, why you should be more risky. Um, but it makes me think back: Is he really pulling one over on the Federation, or does the Federation just not care? Because if <laughs> I remember correctly, there was a time when Cisco called him out on the fact that. They hadn't charged him Correct. for anything. And they were like, yeah, uh, if you don't want your bill to suddenly come due, <laughs> you're going to do as we say. <laughs> so it's kind of, I think that's how it goes for them. It's just like we we majorly look the other way, but yes. mainly because when we need you, you show up. Right. So don't mess well, up a good thing. And the Federation apparently doesn't even need money. So... You know, they're operating in a cashless society. The Ferengi, that's all they care about. So the Ferengi might think they're getting one over on the Federation, but as far as the Federation might be concerned, that's not something they worry about. Um, so, yeah, yeah, who would come out on top of a situation like that? When you when you live in a society that does not need any source of money, currency, income, or whatever, right. versus a society that seems to totally revolve around having it. Right. From the from the standpoint of those that it revolves around having it, it would seem like they are dealing with people who have no concept of money. Therefore, telling them how much things cost is a goldmine for you because they're going to pay it. If they right. want what it is that you're trying to sell them, they're going to come up with a way to pay it. Right. And they just don't understand the concept of money. So they're just – you could be getting them hand over fist here for things that shouldn't cost even a third of that. Right. But for the other side, I feel like there's also a possibility that they could be coming out ahead because in a society where you do not, where not only do you not need money, but you really don't have a true concept of money, then that means that coming up with the raw materials to buy whatever it is that you're trying to get, right, it's probably very easy. So it's not a big deal for them to go right. out and get diamonds to trade or rubies to trade or well i mean my whatever. whole my whole thought is that if you have a replicator yes things on the replicator might not be as authentic as otherwise but if it is effectively as good as the real thing you could get away with a lot on some level right 
Yeah. And that's the, and that's kind of the whole point of replicators. I mean, is that they can they can make everything. Right. Like there there are very few elements that they can't uh, replicate that they can't reproduce, right. and those tend to be more exotic ones found in the far flung reaches of other people's society. It right. seems like, especially if you want to take into the consideration that initially the replicator was built in the Federation, in Starfleet. This, uh, again, a Starfleet replicator. By and large, that means that whatever minerals, materials, resources are found in the Federation, that thing can replicate precisely. Right. So if they need gold to make wiring, they can replicate gold. If right. they need diamonds to make, I don't know, circuitry or whatever in the hell, they can make diamonds. Right. So again, if they go to a society that values gold, that values diamonds, that values the things, they can just push a button and <laughs> out it comes. Exactly. Which you of know? course brings up the great question of, I mean, the Ferengi have access to replicators. We know that Quark has replicators. So what is the distinction for Quark? You know, so what? on that, I know the answer. So if you dig into it a bit, you know, they always talk about gold pressed latinum. Right. So the thing that is the true value is latinum because latinum is so unique and so and its properties are so in flux or whatever that latinum cannot be replicated. And there's only a finite God. amount of latinum. So when they get the latinum, they suspend it in a mixture of gold and they press it into bars. That's right. why gold pressed latinum bars they, and then they cut them into different lengths and sizes, and those each denote different things. So you can get a full-on bar, right? You know, it looks like a gold bar, you know, but yeah. there's latinum in it, and then you have the little chips and strips and little right. chunks and whatever else. So it's different, so but that's, that's like, the thing. I've never really asked you to explain the latinum before, but yes, but that's that what it is. And, and that, that has was, to be it. There, yeah. anything of value has to, on some level, be limited in its in its amount. Yes. Uh, which is why inflation is always a problem because if you have too much of a thing, then it devalues the other things that already exist, etc. So I, what I'm always curious about is, yes, the Federation doesn't need money like the Ferengi seem to value it, but that they must still somehow find a way to make the relationship work unless the Ferengi are still so alien to the Federation in the sense of like they are not integrated – you know, the Federation and the Frankie are still not united. In, in They're their... not. They're very much – so, yeah, they may share the same sector of space, and that being, you know, the Alpha Quadrant, <laughs> but they are not They are not affiliated like that. There are various right. peace treaties and things like that, but the Ferengi Alliance is not a part of the Federation. But right. the Federation has enough member worlds that finding Latinum is not difficult for them. So when sense. it comes to them needing to trade with the Ferengi for whatever reason, they have a way of getting Latinum and getting right. it to the Ferengi. Right. But and, and that's how that works. But then they also supply so many other things too. The Federation is so good at, you know, there's they have ships available for stuff. They've got plenty of of, you know, materials, resources and everything else. Plus, they've got like the best techs. Like everybody is very impressed with the Starfleet Corps of Engineers. They're they're just top notch. <laughs> These guys are great. So it's like if you you know, and they even it's even a joke. You know, whenever um, people get trapped or whatever, and somebody finds out that someone 
is a Starfleet officer or was even a former Starfleet officer. They're like, well, I mean, you were in Starfleet. Why can't you whip us up or whatever the hell to get out of here or to signal our escape or whatever it is? They're kind of like, you know, the MacGyvers of the Star Trek generation or the Star Trek (laughs) universe. Yeah, you you want a Starfleet officer somewhere with you because they have this basic skill set that they all they all come with. What a world to live in. You you don't need money. You don't need money. Um, all of your needs are taken care of. And you're trained so that in a majority of situations, you are the handy one. Yeah. You are the one to have. So, yeah, I think um, I, I could go with that. I could I could go with that kind of society. Right. Everybody has a base level of knowledge that makes you useful almost anywhere. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Star Trek definitely presents a very interesting future. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and, but, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say, it's it's certainly a future that's born out of some very dark times. Like, they don't talk about it very much. Yeah. And and later starts, like the newer Treks that are out have touched on it more than any other Treks have in the history of their runs. But it's what we know is that they're, you know, it's it comes from near decimation of of populations Society of societies yeah and it's not just humanity like a lot of them go through it like the vulcans had their um also their kind of near death moment as a collective people you know it seems to be the thing that makes them realize we need to rethink things is right. the fact that they're brought to the brink of extinction by their own actions so right. um but yeah right. uh hate that dark part but love the stuff that comes after <laughs> you know <laughs> So, (laughs) so I think we've touched on pretty much everything. Um, Was there any, what are your final thoughts on this episode here? Yeah, I think it's a good one. Uh, I wouldn't qualify it as great per se, not in the sense that we've had great episodes, especially this season. Um, This one is, what I do like about it though, is it's on the defiant. We're getting the more classic actiony stuff. That's one thing we didn't talk about. The Defiant itself, our silent other character, the Defiant. <laughs> She's a beautiful ship, and I loved, I loved the taking her into the uh, atmosphere of the planet and um, seeing her get shot at, and the whole sinking kind of giving you that submarine feel. Like even that scene before Cisco gets taken out, and they're on the bridge, and he's lowered his voice. And he's whispering a little bit, you know, and the tensions in the air before they fire the probe that's going to turn into a bomb that blows yes. up one of the one of the Jemadar ships, you know. And it's just like it's so quiet. You can hear the just the little accent beepings and stuff. And then all hell breaks loose. But it, yes. it's just so great. And the Defiant just, you know, when the Defiant was first revealed, I did think it was ugly. But over time, man, has that ugly little ship wormed its way into my heart. I love the Defiant. It is a great great ship. Great right. functional ship. Yeah. So. Um, there's a great moment where he's also, he's he's captain. He's sitting there on, on the bridge. And I forget exactly what's happening. But I guess it must be right before they shoot the torpedo that could come around and hit them or something. Mm-hmm. But, you know, someone, I think it's Kira, says something and he's he's like I forget the line, but he's basically like, I got this. And he asks a question to someone and he's, he's just cool, calm and collected. And he's, and he's, you can tell he's worried. He's, he's concerned. He's got a problem, 
But at no point does he lose his cool. Like he's he's a captain, baby. Um, in fact, if there was one critique I have for this episode, it's that Cisco is incapacitated for like the second half of the episode. Um, I was thinking, I'm like, I don't know that Picard was ever incapacitated like this. You know, that's true. Not not to the point that other people were doing things around him and he wasn't aware. Well, you know, if if he was unconscious or anything, he's having like visions. He's that's, that's what I'm saying. Like yeah. we were still we were still very much aware of Picard and his stuff, even when he right. was supposedly unconscious. Right. Or if Picard was unconscious, everybody else was unconscious too. There was never right. a time where he was just on the bridge but out of it. Like that right. didn't happen. Right. Exactly. That's exactly my point. Yeah. Yeah. And again, we've already talked about it multiple, multiple, multiple times, but the difference in how Picard and Cisco are portrayed and treated by their shows is different. It's Cisco is part of a team in the sense of like, he's not, he is not the character that everything else orbits around like that's, Picard does. Yes. Picard that's true. is the star of TNG and everyone there is for him. Um, it's true that he he Ricard is definitely the center focus, and everybody else kind of orbits around him and does things, and then reports back to him. Right. Cisco, we see even here, he's in command. He is the captain, but he was he, he spent as much time in the captain's chair as he did out of it. He yes. was you know standing over Dax and Kira when they were being shot at, and he's moving around to different stations and talking to officers. He's down in the mess hall with Quark and Hannah talking about things. He's he's everywhere doing things. Right. Whereas if this was the Next Generation crew, Riker or Deanna would have been down in the mess hall talking with Hannah. And That's Quark. exactly right. You know, actually, uh, it, it, it would have been, been Deanna. Riker would have been, if he, he would have been in engineering, and then uh, Picard would have been on the bridge. That's how that would have gone. Yeah, yeah. If Picard might have started the episode by saying hi to the representative, and then saying, "Here's my team. If you need anything, I'll be on the bridge." Yes. Blah blah. blah. Um, or if he was participating, he would be the guy. There's no middleman. There's no quirk middleman. Yeah, right. Cisco and the deep space and the yeah deep space nine show is more about a nitty gritty perspective we got a, yes. a a broken planet the bajoran planet is coming out of terrible times we're on this station that's a former colony, a you know penal colony you got a smaller ship you got more gritty problems to deal with yeah tng was dealing about the starship flagship enterprise it's the idealized version of it is. everything deep space and, that, and that's really why and that's why it works because they were going because Next Generation, they were going to different places, and they were trying to show off the best of the best of Starfleet. Why our society works, why we're better, why you want to be a part of us. We're not going to force you, but we want you to see all of the stuff that we offer there. It's like a grand series of like state dinners and um, you know, just this being very charming and charismatic and bringing you into the fold that way, whereas... Deep Space Nine is all about getting in and doing the work, you know, getting your hands dirty. We're moving stuff. We've got refugees over here. Where are we going to put them? We've got the sick and the dying over here. Where are we going to put them? We've got we got to do trade deals. We've got vagabonds and thieves and all kinds of other dangerous characters out here. 
how are you going to handle it? They need somebody who can quickly jump around. I think that if you transpose the characters, I think that both shows would have ended up being mutually boring because Picard is way too much of the the grand statesman right. that it would have been boring to watch him just do a series of negotiating You know, it's interesting you bring meetings. that up and talk about the emissary because I think Picard would have grabbed the mantle of emissary on to some level. Okay, he I can see that. It would have fit him more. He would have been he would have been more used to the, I guess the re, the regality of it. Yes, exactly. He would have gone to the to the to the party. Amara cer- ceremony. Ceremony. Yes, not he would not have missed it. Not because he's an a hole and he's like, yeah, worship me, I'm amazing. But to like, yes, I am here to. Mm-hmm. To respect yes. your 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 beliefs, I respect your culture. I, I respect your beliefs. Even if I don't personally believe in any of that, I'm not going to in any yes. way insinuate that I don't have anything but the highest of respect for you and your people. And I'm here to be seen, not because I necessarily need to be seen because I'm Picard and I'm still a great guy, but because you want to see me. Right, you yeah. want to see me. This is important to you. Yes, I am here to show you that I respect that. That's yeah. That would have been Picard. For sure. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it's fun talking like this. Imagine yeah. Like no, the, this, this is great. I, and I think that, like, you know, the, the moment where um, in The Next Generation, where they run into the Romulans for the first time after it had been like 100 years or whatever since seeing them, and uh, the Romulan ship decloaks and tries to threaten the Enterprise and everything else, if that was Cisco, Cisco would have definitely fired on them. Like I, I feel a hundred percent he would have fired on him. It has just been like, like they because they were threatening the Enterprise, and yeah. you know Picard was trying to be all smooth about it and whatever else. But I just feel like Cisco would have been like, "You're not going to threaten me." Like, right. did you? He, you asked your questions. Do you want? What do you want? You ready to throw down? You ready to go? Because yeah. if you're, if you want to go, we'll go. Like that's yeah. that's how I pick up on uh, Cisco. <laughs> to me, it's like I'm not necessarily going to start it, but I'm ready. I just yeah. want you to know. Yeah. I'm ready. If I so, throw the first punch just to make sure that I get a punch in, yeah, uh, Cisco comes off a little bit like that. For yeah. Sure. But yeah, um, but yeah, going back to my critique, the only critique I have this episode is I feel like Cisco, because the rest of the episode is about these pairings of characters as they're trying to deal with their personal situations, mm-hmm. every other character is working through their relationships as a pair. But Cisco and Kira, their relationship is being worked out by the fact that he's incapacitated, and Kira has to accept that and work yes. through her her issues of whether or not Cisco is alive or not. Like the moment where she has to use the hypo spray on him is a big deal, and um, I liked I when he responds to that, he kind of comes out of it a little bit. Um, he says, uh, "What happened?" and he she says what and he's like to the to the farmers like he's 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 still out of it a bit he's not come back from his injury yet but he's still there enough to have heard her story and to tell her to continue so it's a great little moment but and again Avery Brooks does a great job acting the part you know his mm-hmm. eyes flickering and all that but i just i just feel i'm just i'm just kind of sad at times that Cisco by being more of a team player means that as a character he kind of gets downgraded a bit compared to Picard. He he is a team yeah. player and that shows out in the rest of the, the story how it plays out. So 
Well, I will say that some of that will, in my only, again, allusion there to the future, some of that does change. Uh, like I said, this is a great episode to kind of get us back on track to the fact that we do have a story arc that we're working with. And um, we're, we're getting there. We're getting really into this kind of complex story. And it's, it's, it's interesting because I'm recognizing now that there are subtle parts of it that have been a part of everything that we've watched so far. But as I said, you know, a long time ago, season four is really where a lot of this stuff picks up and right. explodes on us. And we get a lot, um, you know, and then it kind of just carries through for the rest of the show. But when we get there, there will be a time where we're reflecting and we'll be, you know, I'll be like, you remember when we did this and we talked about this and there was, and then you'll see the chain and it's, it's great. And I think that's why Deep Space Nine has always come out on top for me as my favorite of the treks, because they do such a great job of subtly telling you a story that by the time you realize that you're, you know, in that you truly are in the middle of it, it's, it's completely snuck up on you. So, um, but we'll, we're going to get there. But um, I do think that's going to be it, unless you have anything else that you would like to add about this episode. No, I think I said my piece. Okay. Well, I do think this is not a skippable episode. I think you do need to watch this episode for the development of the relationships, for how things change, and also to kind of remind yourself of just who everybody is. And, of course, we get to see some growth of Worf, so you need to appreciate that. Yeah. Um, This is the first week that there was no... New Trek in a while, you know. Uh, you forgot to mention how Picard ended last week. I was, I'll do it now. I'll just say that it was fantastic. It was absolutely wonderful. I loved the ending. Um, there was a, a critique somebody threw out about the ships and the way that the ships move. and Because back in the day, we never saw the ships move this way. So why they do that now? And it's like... Because that's how the ships can move. All right. They they the ships could always move that way. We were just limited by technology. That's why we didn't see it. And now we can see it. And it was beautiful. It was absolutely wonderful. It was great to see some old faces come back for some things. Um, um great send off for the crew. And I do believe this will be the only time that when it comes out. I will buy the um, DVD, Blu-ray, whatever the hell it is when it when it finally releases right. for this third season of Picard because I've heard already that there are so many wonderful, wonderful, great extras mm. that have been added. And um, uh, I, I want to see it. There's one scene in particular where even the director was talking about how it just, everything was working out so well and it was the end, but they didn't want it to end. So they um, just kept filming and had a great time. Right. So um, to that end, I do want to talk about there's this this thing that you can check out. And it is basically the Star Trek Virtual Museum. And it allows you to um, tour the various... Bridges of the Enterprise, um, all this stuff, right? Virtual reality. And it shows the breakdown of of the ships and even the ones that are kind of in between that were never actually seen on air, okay? That was my point there. Um, and you can go and watch these right now 
on uh, I think there's a couple of them that are on YouTube, and there's even a few that were done that were for like kind of some in between things of next gen and Picard, and they're great. I as soon as the show was over, they put out a link, and I was able to watch several of them, and um, man, they just made you like. I don't know. It was like I, I was ready for the show. I was ready for that movie to continue. It was great. Uh, there's even one that features Spock. And um, all I'm going to say on that one is, and, uh, this, this is a warning, that is not Spock. And I don't mean that to be disparaging. I'm just saying that when you look at it, it's not Spock, all right? Don't let him fool you. But no, but it's also it's also not CGI. It's just a person who looks really 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 close so don't freak out when you watch it and think how did they do this when did they film it before Nimoy died on that they didn't it's just not him it's just somebody who looks damn close and um it's Make it's creepy <laughs> yeah there's that too but it's it's also unnerving like I because I freaked for a second and I was like okay and then I looked it up but yeah it's uh it's uncanny how close this man looks like Leonard Nimoy so uh, go check it out. You can find all the links on Paramount Plus with uh, all the Picard stuff. It's all still there. Go check them out. Even if you don't want to look at the Spock thing, you can look at how they recreated uh, certain other ships like the original Enterprise and all that. And it's great, great layout stuff. So go take a look and uh, have a good time. All right. So with that being said, um, tune in next week when we are watching the episode Little Green Men. Um, not going to talk about what I think of that episode obviously I don't want to spoil it for David but Little Green Men go tune in watch that come back and we will be here to talk with you on that one next week until then take care of yourselves thanks guys